Notice Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there's one thought I want to give to you, and that is God is a God of purpose. He doesn't do anything by chance. He doesn't roll the dice or flip a coin uh, concerning our lives. He doesn't do anything by accident. And there's a reason why God does everything that he does. Amen. But that's not to say that everything that happens to you is from God. I said, that's not to say that everything that happens to you is from God, because that's not true. See, if a man, <clears throat> if a man has an, a, a, an accident on the highway, some Christians will be quick to say, well, everything happens for a reason. See, when you say something like that, it sounds like you're really smart. But of course, you're not. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, that's, that's, that's obvious. That doesn't tell me anything. Maybe the reason was the man fell asleep at the wheel. Maybe the reason was because he was distracted. Of course, what the person really means is it must have been God's will because it happened. But is that thinking biblical? No, no. For example, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all people to be saved. See? How many people? All. Is there anyone that God desires not to be saved? Not according to this verse. All is all. Yet Jesus describes salvation the way of salvation as a narrow gate in Matthew 7, 14, and said only a few people will enter through it. So God desires everyone to be saved, but only a few will be saved. So it seems like a contradiction. How can that be? And it's resolved this way. Just because something is God's will, that doesn't automatically mean it will happen in our life. Every day there are people who die and leave this world without Christ and launch out into eternity of darkness, but that's not God's will, yet it happens every day. Amen? So when it comes to destiny, some people, especially in the church world, they say things like, um, God is in control, everything's up to him. If he wants it to happen, it will happen. If he doesn't want it to happen, it won't happen. We are slaves to his will. Then other people, especially in the secular, secularly minded people, they say, it's up to me. I am the captain of my destiny. I choose my own fate. But as I read the Bible, I see that neither of those views is correct. That rather, God has a will for us, 
but he requires our cooperation. I said, God has a will for us, but he requires our cooperation, you see. See, if we believe that everything is in God's hands, then we become passive. That means we will accept whatever comes our way. Well, that it happened, therefore it must be God's will, right? If, I, if I'm sick, well, the Lord must have some purpose in this. If, you know, if, if, I, if uh, my house catches on fire and burns to the ground, well, I know God must be working in this. And so what we really are doing is just lying down on the ground and allowing the devil to walk on top of us. But then again, if we think that everything is in our own hands, then we become self-willed people. We become stubborn, obstinate people. We become rebellious people. And when I, when I read the Bible, I don't see a God who is aloof and disconnected from the affairs of men. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 29, that not even one sparrow, one, one small bird, falls to the ground apart from your father. Now, the New King James Version says, like, apart from your father's will. But in the Greek text, the word will is not there. He didn't actually say that it was necessarily God's will that every little bird would fall. But not, the Passion Bible says, not without the knowledge of your father. But nonetheless, the point is that God is concerned about even birds. He takes note of that. He's aware of that. Certainly, he's concerned about you. He's not distant and indifferent, but he's a God who's intimately concerned and involved with people's lives. I see that from the very beginning of the Bible to the end. Amen? So, what we understand is that we are partners with God, co-laborers together with him, that he has a part to play, but we also have a part to play. And if we will do what God has asked us to do, then he will do what he has promised to do. So it's not all up to him. It's not all up to me. It's me and God working together. Hallelujah. And so when I realize that, then I endeavor to know his will and to obey his voice. And that's the, that's the road to blessing. Hallelujah. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So he's using a figure of speech, but it illustrates this same point. He knocks, but we have to open, right? When somebody knocks on your door, what does that mean? It means I'd like to come in, but the, the knob to the supernatural is on your side of the door. Hmm? Notice Jesus did not say, I love you so much, I'll just bust the door down. I'll just, I'll just blast it off its hinges. He did not say that. He said, I'll call but you respond. I'll give, but you must receive. I'll speak, but you must hear. Salvation is a gift of God paid for with the precious blood of Christ, but nobody will have that gift unless they take hold of it by faith and receive it. 
So we have our part to play as well. We are not pre-programmed robots. We are not automations. God created us with the free will, the power to choose. So when we submit our will to God's will, that's where grace is released. Miracles take place in the intersection of God's will and your will. In other words, most of the time, the reason we're not enjoying all of God's abundant provision is not because God doesn't want us to have it, but because we're not cooperating with his will. In fact, if we fall short in any area of our life, it's not because God has failed. Right? Some people find it easier to blame God than to look in the mirror. But actually, if there's any, any, any uh, shortcomings, it's with us. It's not with heaven. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, notice this scripture. Romans 8.28, but I'll read this from the CEV. It says, we know that God is always at work for the good of everyone who loves him. Praise the Lord. So be reminded that God is for you. He's not against you. Right? He's always pulling for you. He's always on your side. He wants you to win. He, he wants the best for you. There are some people that maybe appear to want good for you, but maybe they don't, you know. There's some people that are two-faced. You know, you, they think you think they're your friend, and then, you know, they'll, they'll stab you in the back or something like that. Or, but, but God doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning with him. And because you love him, you can be assured that he is always working. So God never takes a holiday. God never says, well, I'll be in the office tomorrow. You can I'll, uh, contact me. He's always working. The, the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. We can't say that about every Christian we know, but we know the God of Israel you know, doesn't sleep on the job. Hallelujah. He's always working for your benefit. For your good. But you should understand that not everything is the work of God. Not everything that happens comes from God. Right? So we need to be discerning. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us your adversary, the devil. It doesn't say your best friend, the devil. It says your adversary, the devil, prowls around, walks about. Like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, you know, right now, this night, the enemy is looking for someone. Is that someone you? <laughs> He's looking for someone. For what reason? To help them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to inspire them. No, to digest them, to destroy them, to ruin them, you see. So that means not everything that happens in this life is from God. And, you, and obviously the devil is not working for God because the next verse, verse 9 says, therefore resist him, meaning the devil, your adversary, resist him with your faith. Well, we don't resist God's will, do we? 
So obviously not everything that's going on is God's will. So there are some things you should accept and there are some things you should reject. How do I know? That's where, you, that's where the knowledge of God's word comes in. Are you listening to me? I said there are some things you should accept, take hold of, and there are some things you should resist, stand against that. I don't receive that. I don't take that. Amen. I won't accept that. Amen. Glory to God. Now, God is always working for our good. However, his good may not be the same definition always as your good. It may not always be what is pleasing to your flesh. Because God is more concerned with your character development than your immediate comfort. And he is willing for you to go experience some discomfort if that will help you develop in godly character to be more Christ-like, right? So, you know, he wants you to be more and more like his son. So he wants you to have godly patience. That doesn't happen because you read a book called Patience. That doesn't happen because an evangelist laid hands on you and gave you an anointing for patience. There is no such thing. That happens because you went through some things which forced you to endure. Does God want us to develop in love? I mean the agape kind of love, the unconditional kind of love, the kind of love he has. How's he going to do that? Well, yes, he, he nourishes us through the word of God. He ministers us to us through the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely true, but that's not all. In the school of the Spirit, he helps you to walk in love by bringing some unlovely people into your life. Come on, how can you, how can you develop in his kind of love? See? The kind of love that will lay down your life. He, Jesus said no, no one has greater love than to lay down his life for his friend. But Jesus has greater love than that because he laid down his life for his enemies. Right? So he's going to bring some unloving people into your life. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Is it pleasant? No. Is it comfortable? Uh-uh. Is it necessary? Yeah, could be. Could be. Could be. Could be. Think about it. In the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in a bodily shape like a dove. Whoo! I mean, he has the Spirit of God without measure. Glory, you know. And what's the first thing that happened? Immediately, the Spirit led him into the temple. Ah, into the wilderness. And, of course, there he had a picnic and an excursion by the river. And, and roasted marshmallows, and the angels came and gave him a massage. No, that's not at all what happened. He was fasting for 40 days. At the end of those times, the, the, the tempter came, the devil came to test him. Was it pleasant? Uh-uh. Was it necessary? Well, if Jesus had to go through that wilderness to be proven, what about you? See, the difference is... Everybody has to come out of Egypt. 
Everybody has to go through the wilderness. Everybody's headed to the promised land. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness and they died there. Some Christians get saved, get baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they go through some stuff. They experience adversity. And some people just live and die in the wilderness. But if you pass the test, you enter the rest. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's also God working good in you. See, good is not just a good car. Good is not just a good house. Good is not just good shoes. Good is you being good. That's what's good. Because there's some people that have all the good stuff, but they're no good. That's more important to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So if you are in a place right now where you are never challenged, where you don't have opportunities to stretch yourself and grow, hmm, then there's a possibility you're not in God's will. Let me repeat that for you. If you are in a place, you know, literally or figuratively, where you're not challenged, you're just kind of coasting along, You're not stretched. You know, you're, you're not compelled to, to grow, to, 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 to reach for more, to develop. You're just kind of just taking it easy. I mean, I understand that, you know, we all need a rest once in a while, but, you know, the man of purpose needs some times of rest and relaxation. The man of rest and relaxation has no purpose. So if you're in this real easy place all the time and you're not growing, then you're probably not in God's will. Amen. Praise the Lord. You can all sit down. Don't get too excited right now. So God is a God of purpose. And he's actively working to fulfill his purposes. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that means he is not following your counsel. He does not need your advice. And just write it down. He's not interested in your opinion. Come on. How often do we find ourselves being the Lord's counselor? Oh, Lord, here's some things that you need to do. Let me give you a few pointers so that you can be a better God. I want to help you all. I, I'm here to help you, God. He, he, he doesn't need your counsel. Hmm? Hallelujah. He's not looking for your advice. Praise the Lord. He knows ahead of time what he wants to do. Praise the Lord. And... Proverbs 19, verse 21 says this once again in the contemporary English version. We may make a lot of plans, but the Lord will do what he has decided. That's pretty plain. We may make a lot of plans, 
I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to go over here, and then I'm going to do that, I'm going to marry this kind of person, and I'm going to have this kind of a career, and I've got it all planned out, and, and God, here it is, go ahead and bless it. We may make a lot of plans, but the Lord will do what he has decided. He planned the redemption of humanity before time began. And long before you were ever born, he had a plan for your life as well. And you may have a lot of thoughts about what you would like to do in this earth. But if you want God to get involved with those plans, you submit your plans to heaven. I'm climbing the ladder of success. One rung at a time. I've reached the pinnacle What a shame to climb the ladder of success only to discover you're leaning against the wrong wall. Amen. In the final analysis, only the counsel of God will stand. God will allow your plans to be wiped off the map. Why? Because it's not his plan. I said God will allow your plans, your ideas to be crushed. In fact, because he loves you, he will allow that to happen. Why? Because if your plans were just succeeding and doing wonderful, you probably would not be motivated to seek his will for your life. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us the importance of changing our thinking. You know, this is a mind renewal session, right? And and the reason we need to have a renewed mind is so that we can discern, we can recognize the will of God. You see, if everything that happens is God's will, then you don't need to know his his will. You just wake up in the morning and life will happen. So obviously, if you need to know God's will, then it's necessary. And if you don't know his will, then some things are not going to happen. Right? And he refers to, in Romans 12 too, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, right? So there are some things that are good, but it's not perfect. I'd like to challenge everybody. I'll challenge myself tonight, too. Good is not good enough. Good is not good enough. You want to aim for perfect See, there's some things, it's not a sin, it's not wrong, it's not morally wrong, it's not against, you know, God's word per se, but it may not be his will for you. That's your idea. Aim for perfect. Hallelujah. Because when we are not in God's perfect will, things don't work perfectly. That's why some people struggle in life. They're never in the will of God, never completely in the will of God. There's a mixture. It's a little bit of God and a whole lot of me. And so what what do we see? A little bit of God and a whole lot of me. So let's move. Let's move. Let's take some inventory. Maybe there's some thoughts, some plans, some things I'm doing that that's not God's will for my life. Maybe God has asked me to do some things, and I don't want to hear that. One reason God doesn't speak to some people is they're not open to it. They want to hear it. No, no, 
no, no, no. Have you ever talked to somebody about something and they just, no, 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 don't, don't, don't even, don't walk away. I don't, I don't want to hear that. Don't, don't talk to me, right? But that's not the attitude that we should have concerning God. We should, we should, we should submit to his will. If this is your will, I'll do it. Amen? Hallelujah. Being out of God's will is expensive. You think Tokyo is expensive. <laughs> you think London is expensive. I know another place that's really expensive. Right here where you live. But if you're out of God's will, it could cost you. Amen. The safest place in the world is in the perfect will of God. Come on, some people think, if I could just go to this place, this imaginary, idyllic utopia, somewhere over there, that everything will be safe. Well, you know, those people who live in those safe places and slip on a bar of soap in the shower and break their neck and die. I don't mean to be, you know, crude or something, but that's what happens. The safest place is in the palm of his hand. It's right smack in the middle of God's will. Hallelujah. The Bible says in Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Allow me to take a little bit of liberty here. Let me paraphrase that verse this way. The will of the Lord is a strong tower. A righteous man or woman runs into it, and there he is safe. Hallelujah. I mean, that means that a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. He will give his angels charge over you to keep you lest you even dash your foot against a stone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But when we, when we become inaccurate, I think that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, good, acceptable, perfect. I think there's something that's inaccurate, like just sort of generally, you know, I go to church and you know, go to church on Sunday. And, of course, I'm here on Wednesday, so, hey, you know. But they, get, but they become inaccurate. Notice God told Joshua, you know, meditate upon this book of the law day and night that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. Notice that word, careful, all, be precise, be accurate. That means little things do matter, right? Little attitudes, little actions, little words, little decisions, it does matter. Amen? So, uh, Brother Hagen was uh, holding a meeting in one particular church, like a revival meeting, and... uh, he was on the platform, and, and the platform was made out of wood, and it was polished. Like, they just waxed that, that, that platform, and it was bright and kind of shiny. It's also slick as glass, and he slipped in the service. He slipped and fell on his elbow, and it was knocked all out of joint. And so he actually continued preaching. I think he finished the service, but then, you know, they had to take him to the hospital, and, uh, and they, had, they gave him an opera. He had a surgery. 
His, they said, your arm's not broken, but it's, it's completely dislocated, like from the elbow. So we, we have to administer anesthesia, and we have to put the, el- the arm back together again. You couldn't stand the pain if we just did it, you know, while you were conscious. And so then they said, and you're going to be, you know, in a cast for like several weeks, and you'll never have full use of that arm. You'll, you'll have limited mobility. So Brother Hagen was sitting, this is his testimony, it's, I think it's very interesting. He was sitting in the hospital room, you know, by himself just recuperating, and he had an open vision. His eyes were wide open, and he heard footsteps coming down the hallway. The door opened, and there stood Jesus. He said, I, I saw him just as clearly as I see any man I've ever seen. Nobody else evidently saw anything. Of course, no one else was in the room. He said that Jesus closed the door, walked toward the bed, pulled up a chair, and sat next to me and began to talk to me. And one of the things he said, I, you know, just, just to hit some of the high points, he, he said that, that I didn't cause your arm to be dislocated, that God is not the author of anything that kills or destroys, you see. But he said... He did allow it to happen in the sense that, that, that he, he said, you may ask me, well, did you know that this would happen? Yes, I knew it. Could you have stopped it? Yes, I could have, but I decided not to. Well, why not? And he said, because you have neglected the ministry that I gave to you. Now, that's not, that's not true concerning you. That's concerning him. Because certain things the Lord had, had done in his life, had said to him, and actually had given him an anointing and, a, and, a, and released him into a, a particular ministry. And he said, you have neglected the gift of God that I have given you. And you have not walked in that particular ministry, the kind of ministry that I gave you. And he further said, Instead of being angry with me that I did not prevent this from happening, actually, you should be glad it happened because if this had not arrested your attention, this is what the Lord said, you would not have lived past 50 years of age. Whoa. So that tells me some Christians don't live their full length of time because they're out of God's will. I mean, on the one hand... If you're not going to do what God created you to do in this world, then you might as well go on home to heaven. No sense wasting any more time hanging around. That's true. Amen. I've said this before, but I think I shall repeat it. There is not time in this life to do everything your flesh would like to do. This life is short. You know... Uh, there's a lot of things people, they have a big bucket list. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go this. I've got a whole bunch of, you know, and I'm going to spend, I love to fish and I love to, you know, hunt and I'm going to climb rocks and, you know, all this kind of, I want to go skiing on Mount Everest and, you know, everything. You know. There's not time to do everything your flesh would like to do. When you get to heaven, you'll have a lot of time. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time. Long time. I don't, I don't know that we'll go fishing and hunting in heaven. I don't think so. But, but, you know, there's a lot of time to do a lot of things in heaven. In this world, there is enough time to do the will of God. Amen. However, the Lord said to him, the doctor said it will take so many weeks, like 
11 weeks or something for your arm to be completely healed. I'm going to speed up the process. I'll speed up the healing process. And you, this cast will come off your arm. I think it was like in two weeks' time. And the doctor said, You'll, you won't have mobility, but you will have mobility. There'll just be a slight little tinge, and I'm going to leave that in there. This is what the Lord said. You can take it or leave it. He, he, said, he said, I'm going to leave that in there just to remind you. You put the ministry I gave you first. Amen. Hallelujah. So often Christians get out of God's will. See, there's a principle. Now, you might, get, you might be sitting there feeling afraid. Oh, no, maybe God called me to a particular ministry, and I'm not doing it. I might slip tonight and break my arm. Wait a minute. There's a principle that to whom much is given, much is required. Now, see, I mean, maybe Jesus didn't appear to you like, like that. Maybe, maybe you haven't had the same experiences like that, so you wouldn't be held responsible for as much uh, as he would. See, why did God deal so severely with the Israelites in the wilderness? I mean, one time the ground opened up and swallowed some people. I mean, I've known some people, you know, in the church world, I wish the ground would open up and swallow them too, but it didn't happen, you know. (laughs) Why did God deal so severely with them? You read it and you'll kind of think like, wow, I mean, this kind of, you know, couldn't couldn't they just get a, a, a Wednesday night lesson and maybe... You know, okay, no dessert for you tonight. I mean, why, woo, you know, fire came out and burned people up. To whom much is given, much is required. They saw those miracles in Egypt. They didn't read about it. They, they were there. They experienced the Red Sea parting. They saw the glory cloud come down on Mount Sinai. They saw the fire. They, they, they saw the miracles. They, they ate manna from heaven. So they don't have any excuse you understand what I'm saying? But to those who, who haven't that knowledge, well, not as much is required, you see. Amen. But when Christians get out of God's place for them, they are vulnerable to an attack from the enemy. So the devil has a vested interest in wooing you out of God's will because that makes, that makes his job easier. And then many people blame God for their misfortune and their hearts grow hard toward God. And the devil says, mission accomplished. Because actually the devil doesn't care about like your motorbike got stolen. What does he care about your motorbike? He doesn't care anything about that. He doesn't really care about the fact that, you know, you know, so much money got stolen from me. What does the devil care about that? But if your heart becomes hardened toward God, that's a victory for hell. The, the devil wasn't interested in Job's camels. He could care less about camels, donkeys and sheep. He didn't care anything about that. In fact, he doesn't even really care about his children. What he cares about is his heart. That's why the, even his wife was saying, curse God and die. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. Don't marry Job's wife, you know. <laughs> and don't have Job's friends. <laughs> Amen. So William Branham, William Branham was a very unusual person. Unfortunately, at the end of his life, he got into some difficulty doctrinally and some things were kind of squirrely. But before that, he, he was truly a man of God and he, he, did, he had a marvelous ministry. But he started off as a 
pastor of a small Baptist church in a little town called Jefferson, Indiana. My wife and I have been there. We visited there. And, um, and he also worked a, a, a job as a park ranger in like the national park. And he took care of the grounds and that type of thing. And so he was, he was very young. And somehow he was invited to a Pentecostal, old-fashioned Pentecostal, like open-air conference, uh, open-air meeting. I think it was several days meeting. And so he, actually, he, he didn't have any money. He, he had a little, little old car, you know, like a Model A Ford car, really old 1920s style car. And he slept in his car, and he had just a little bit of, he had a few biscuits and some, some milk to drink. That's all he had, didn't have money for food or anything like that. And, and so, uh, and, you know, he was a total stranger there, but those folks told him about the, the baptism with the Holy Spirit and, and speaking in a heavenly language and other tongues like that. And he, you know, he, he, he first, I think maybe that was the first time he heard that and, and that type of thing. And for some reason, those folks invited him to preach one afternoon in their conference, though he's totally unknown to them. They didn't even know who he was. And his preaching, I think, was kind of a little, kind of sad, you know. He'd, he wasn't really developed at, at that point. Most people aren't when they start out, right? And, uh, but amazingly, after he preached his sermon, uh, pastors came up to him saying, I need you to preach in my church. We need revival in my church. We want you to come. And, uh, you know, and, and within you know, a short space of time, he kind of filled up his whole calendar. All these different Pentecostal pastors that wanted him to preach. So he was, he was very excited. He went home, and his mother-in-law was disgusted because he had associated with these holy rollers, a term of derision, speaking of like these Pentecostal people. And, and she made such a fuss about this how that you're going to ruin the family name and, and I can't believe that you would hang out with, you know, uh, associate yourself with these kind of people, people that are so low and that type of thing. And so Branham canceled his entire itinerary, which I don't know how many he did. I, I have the sermon recorded that he, that his testimony, but I don't know how, but it was, it must have been quite a bit. He canceled the whole rest of the year. He just canceled everything. So he's just back home again. Later that same year, a terrible flood came to his area. It's right there like on the Mississippi River, actually. A terrible flood came. And because Branham was a park ranger, he, had, he felt he had an obligation to help evacuate people. And it, was a, it was a big disaster. And I think he was gone for many days, maybe, maybe even a couple of weeks and when he came home, his wife was not in the house, and the house had all been flooded. And he went, you know, to the hospital and here and there trying to search for his wife. He had to travel by a little, um, little motorboat, little tiny boat to go from place to place. Everything's flooded. And finally, he located his wife, and she was ill. And, and they had a little baby, and they had evidently somehow uh, contracted tuberculosis. And so, you know, eventually his wife and little baby died. And he had to bury his wife and the little baby, holding the baby in her arms, you know, together. And, and, and it, just, it just broke his heart. It just broke his heart. It just tore him up so bad, you can imagine. 
Just tore him up so bad that he even contemplated ending his life. In fact, he was working. I don't know how this happened, but he was working on these electric lines, big power lines. And he was so despondent, so, so, so depressed, he grabbed hold of the electric on, pur- on purpose to kill himself. And it's just like a miracle. It's inexplicable. You know, they didn't have the load shedding that we have here. You could probably grab hold in. No problem. But, you know, he grabbed hold of electric wire and, and to kill himself, but it, it, it had no effect on him. You know, he, he didn't die. And, uh, and so he, he was so despondent, he, he went home and he just wept. He just wept. It's, it's really, to hear the story, it's just really amazing. And, and, and he, he had a vision of heaven. Suddenly he had a vision of heaven. And he saw, you know, all the glories of heaven. And he saw this beautiful home. And he was walking toward it. And he, he met his wife in the vision, you see. And, uh, and, and he said, this is a beautiful home. And she said, this is, this is your home too. One day you'll also live here. And, uh, and little sides are kind of, kind of sweet. He was very poor. And he wanted to have a nice, comfortable chair to sit in, you know, a big padded chair, you know, like that. So he, he couldn't afford it. So he bought it on installment payments, you know, with his meager income. But... Uh, he was paying like just a couple of dollars, you know, every week or something like that. And he fell behind in his payments because, I forget, he had to buy something else, medicine or something. I can't remember. And, and so he came home one day and his chair wasn't there, you see. And he asked his wife and she, she kind of just, uh, you know, ignored him and said, Hey, I'm fixing your favorite dinner. And yeah, but what about my chair? And, and I'm going to make you a cherry pie. And won't you, won't that be, why don't we go for a walk afterward? He said, where's my chair? Where's my chair? And so she eventually broke down and, and told him that they came and the company repossessed it. They took it back. But in the vision, when he went in his house, I thought it was really sweet. He saw that same chair. Big, plush, comfortable chair. And she said, sit down in this chair. She said, no one will ever take this from you. No one will ever take this chair from you. And so he said, he said in the vision that he began to say to her, I, I need you. I need you. And she said to him, listen to me. We made a mistake. This is my point. We made a mistake. We should not have canceled all of those doors that God, oh, God, supernaturally opened for us. We made a mistake, you see. And that's why the enemy took advantage of us. But she said, but, but you need to be faithful. And you need to keep running your race. And so the vision was over and he was back home, you know, and just sobbing. And he went on to have an a, a internationally known ministry traveled eventually all over the world in tremendous healings and, and gifts of the Spirit operating in his life. But you can see then in the vision, she told him, we made a mistake that you may be careful to do all that God has told you to do. Why? Because God loves you. Hallelujah. Amen. I got to finish You know this very well. I don't have to go into a lot of detail. Remember Jonah, right? God called him. Some people say, oh, God, you know, uh, you have something for me to do. You know, do you have an anointing for me? Do you have the spirit of God for me? Give me more grace. Give me more wisdom. But God sent Jonah someplace he didn't want to go. 
Does that sound familiar to anybody here today? God is not always going to send you to this idyllic, wonderful place where you want to go. Go to Nineveh, big city, capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians are devils. They are the most barbaric, most bloodthirsty, just evil people. Go there and preach to them. So the Bible says Jonah booked passage on a ship for Tarshish. Now, Nineveh would be like northern Iraq today in the Middle East. Tarshish, according to some sources, may have been located, some islands located in the southern part of Spain, what is now Spain. So he went the opposite direction. And, and, and the time they lived, you know, basically it's the end of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about as far as you dare go. The, we don't know what's beyond there. Maybe the jumping off place. I don't know. You know, Nunami villages after that. But that's as far as you could go. And, um, and um, so he not only didn't, he was not only not in the will of God, he was as far from God's will as you could possibly be. Right? But when we substitute God's plan with our own, Things don't work out so well, as you know the story. Suddenly, evidently for the first little bit, they're having this wonderful little cruise. You know, the, the, you know maybe have a luau on deck and the, and the wind is softly blowing in Jonah's hair. And look at the dolphins. And, you know, and suddenly, suddenly, there's a terrible storm that threatened to tear the ship apart. And, and even the sailors, the mariners on board the ship feared for their life. Being out of God's will not only affects you, it affects some innocent bystanders too. You might sink and also take a lot of others with you. Hallelujah. And it's interesting, Jonah knew he was the problem, and he convinced them, throw me overboard. And I guess they had some level of humanity. They didn't want to do it, you know. But eventually, you know, they realized they had no choice. They threw him overboard and we're back to the luau again, you know, calm winds again. So that means God used Jonah's disobedience as a witness for these pagan sailors. At least somebody saw the goodness of God. (laughs) And then, you know, the story Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Obviously, that's not pleasant. But it's better than drowning in the ocean. I'm sure it's not pleasant. I mean, maybe where you are right now is not pleasant, but you're alive. (laughs) Even if barely, you're alive. Hallelujah. Amen. And the thing is, Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish. So that means you don't have to wait for Sunday morning. You don't have to wait for Wednesday night. You don't have to kneel on marble steps. You can be in a real ugly, slimy, disgusting, nasty place, and God will still hear you. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? Amen. Well, I have to leave my home because it's so dirty and noisy to come to the church and pray. God will hear you in dirty, noisy places. He heard Paul in a jail cell. He heard Jonah inside the intestines of a whale. Hallelujah. Amen. And and, you know, you just can't keep a good man down. 
And that fish found that out. <laughs> and bleh, he came out. God spoke to the fish and the fish vomited. That fish was more obedient than some Christians, I know. <laughs> so then Jonah went to Nineveh. Now, I'm sure that fish didn't regurgitate out in the middle of the depths of the Mediterranean Sea because then Jonah would just drown. He must have taken him near the coastline, I would imagine, because he went from, to Nineveh right after that. And if he went near the coastline, I would imagine there's other people there, you know, fishermen and people who just live there, and suddenly here comes this giant fish, and bleh, out comes a guy covered in slime and says, praise the Lord, uh, where's Nineveh? <laughs> So Jonah went to Nineveh. Jonah actually wanted God to strike the Assyrians. He wanted God to just kill them all. But much to his chagrin, they repented. That's kind of sad when you give an altar call and everybody responds and you're disappointed because you actually wanted everybody to go to hell. <laughs> That's not a good commentary on who you are. <laughs> they repented from the king on down. But I read somewhere that the Assyrians believed in a God who came out of a fish. And I know from reading the Bible that the Philistines and others who lived in that part of the world worshipped a God that they called Dagon, who was half fish, half man. So that means the one reason, I think, one reason they believed him is this is, this is kind of like fits into what their theology here they see a man that regurgitated from a fish who says, God has sent me. And they said, we believe you. We believe you. That's, we were waiting for you. So that means God turned Jonah's adversity into an advantage. And he'll do the same for you. Hallelujah. I said, hallelujah. I'd wrap this up. Ephesians 1.11 says, having been predestined. God is a God of purpose. We are people of destiny. And nothing makes sense until you discover God's purpose for your life. We are not wandering aimlessly through life, whichever way the wind blows. We are headed for our destination. My flight in this particular trip, my flight to India was long and a bit turbulent. Uh, it was pretty bumpy. You know, it's bump, I think it's one of the bumpiest flights I've had to India, you know, across the Atlantic and all of Europe and all that. It's real, especially over the Atlantic, North Atlantic, it's real bumpy. I mean, like, there's a couple of times where I was like, ooh, Shandai, okay, you know, and Jeppy's over there. Ta -ba -ta -ba -ta. She's, <laughs> she was, she was, she was not wasting any time. And, uh, and it was real bumpy, you know. I, I don't just mean like a little tanta tanta. It was like, oh, okay, praise God, praise God. And, um, but we made it. So, you know, who cares how bumpy the ride was? We got here, right? Well, in your journey, there may be a few potholes. Katunka. But who cares as long as you reach your destination? See, it really wouldn't matter if it was the smoothest ride we ever had up until the time we crashed. No, no, that doesn't matter. <laughs> that doesn't matter. I'd rather have a bumpy ride and get there than have a smooth ride and we don't make it. 
Amen. So there may be some, some little interruptions. There may be a little bit of discomfort. It may not always be, you know, peaches and cream. It may not always be a rose garden, but the thing that really matters is that you make it. I thought to myself, I'm not going to live on this plane. This is a means to an end. I'm going to get to my destination. I'm not even going to live in this world forever. I'm just a traveler. I'm a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim. What really matters is that I reach my destination. Hallelujah. I'm not going to die in the wilderness. I'm not going to die in the desert. I'm going into my promised land. Hallelujah. Stand with me to your feet and somebody give God praise in the house today.